We believe that the change which takes place in the heart and life at conversion is a very real one, that the sinner is then born again in such a glorious and transforming manner Mm. that the old things are passed away and all things are become new, insomuch that the things once most desired are now abhorred, while the things once abhorred are now held most sacred and dear, and that now, having imputed to him the righteousness of the Redeemer, and having received of the Spirit of Christ new desires, new aspirations, new interests, a new perspective on life, time, and eternity, fills the blood-washed heart so that his desire is to now openly confess and serve the master, seeking ever those things which are above. Thank you, Laura. Amen. Today we're talking about the new birth. As most of you know, if you've been here for the past month, we've been going through our We Believe series, and the We Believe series simply covers our declarations of faith as a four-square church. Each week we're saying what we believe. We've talked about the importance of not just believing something, but actually having what we believe influence how we think, what we say, and how we act. And we believe in the new birth. But this idea of the new birth, it's, se- it's been separated into its own category in the beliefs of Foursquare, and it's separated from the other ones that we've covered for a very important reason. Let me explain it this way. The plan of redemption, we talked about that several weeks ago, and uh, it celebrates the fact that the Son of God, Jesus, he's become our substitute, dying in our stead in order to pay the penalty for our sins. The next week we talked about the fact that salvation that is offered to us has completely been accomplished by God. Remember, it's salvation through faith. Meaning there's no, or salvation through grace, meaning there's nothing, absolutely nothing, zilch that we can do, no good works that we can do to earn our salvation. It is a free gift from God. Remember, we handed out those little, ba- little boxes to remind you that it is a free gift of grace that we can all receive. And then last week, Pastor Adam, he so eloquently preached on this proper human response to this gift, which is that we receive salvation by sincere repentance for rebelling against God and by acceptance through faith in Jesus Christ. As Savior. Now, once we understand these truths, and not only understand these truths, but when we respond to these truths, we experience the internal miracle that we call the new birth. The new birth. We are regenerated. We're born again. It's the transformation of the heart and the transformation of our lives. For anyone struggling in the Christian walk today, I would, I would say this message is an important message for you to hear. For anyone who has forgotten who you are in Christ, this would be an important message for you to hear. For anyone who has yet to receive that free gift of eternal life, this is an important message for you to hear. Now, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is in the New Testament. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. About, what, three-fourths of the way into that big book. Chapter 3. Let's you get there. I love the rustling of that paper. Are any other books made with that paper? It's amazing. <laughs> All right, verse 1. Read with me. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night, and he said this to Jesus. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. 
Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Hmm. (laughs) How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus said? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. I love that comment. That's incredible. Jesus answers, yeah, you're right. No, he says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Verse six, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Hey, Nicodemus, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You catch that? He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Those of us who have responded to God's free gift of grace, who have repented of our sins, who have accepted Jesus' sacrifice, we are truly now born from above by the infusion of God's spirit. It's a spiritual rebirth. I think sometimes we get confused about what happens when we become a Christian. Sometimes we just dumb it down to this behavior modification program, right? Where we just kind of change our attitude and change our perceptions or our orientation towards God. Where we're just really sorry for our sins and we're going to try really hard not to sin so much. That's not what it means to be a Christian, right? Right? Being a Christian doesn't mean that you just follow a bunch of rules and try not to do bad things. Sometimes that's kind of what we make it out to be. But becoming a Christian is much more radical. See, Christians, we are people that have been so changed by the Holy Spirit, so radically transformed by the Spirit of God that those around us take notice. They say, that man, that woman, there's something new. There's something different. Something has changed. They're not the same. A great question to ask all of ourselves today is simply, can that be said of me? When people experience me, when I come into the room with what I say, with what, how I act, with who I am. Can they say that of me? Is it Christ in me, the hope of glory? Is he evident to me or evident to everyone around me that I hang out with, that I live with, that I talk with? Is there any difference? I mean, I want you to get this. Is there any difference in my life now that I've been born again? Or am I just a nicer person who doesn't swear as much as I used to? Or has there been a radical, radical change from the inside out? Ask yourself that question. See, the new birth, it's more than a theological statement. It is the glorious truth of being a Christian. If you are a Christian here this morning and you've never even heard of the new birth before, well, that's okay. You're born again whether you understand it or not. It's not like this this neat little sticker that we put up on a wall somewhere. It's just the truth of who you are. You have been born again. And I think maybe you'd want to know what that means. I know I do in my mind. I'm always wanting to know what all this stuff means. So you've been born again. You have this thing called the new birth. Now, what does it mean? So I want to walk us through four questions to help explain this idea of the new birth. And I I honestly believe by the end of the day, if you are a Christian, you're going to gain just a whole new level of excitement for what it means to be born again. And then if you're not a Christ follower and you've never received that gift of grace, I have this to say. Today, you're going to want to do that. You're going to want to receive that gift of grace and truly be born again. I'm excited. But before we move any further, let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for who you are, that you have saved us by your grace. And when we receive that gift of grace, we are born again. We become a new creation. We are not the same. I thank you, God. The old is gone. The new has come. We praise you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so to get to that place where we understand the importance of the new birth and how it affects our lives as believers, I want to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. So we're going to go into Genesis, 
And I'm going to ask a very important question from the passage that we're reading in Genesis. And the question is this. What does it mean that humans have been created in God's image? So we've heard that all before, you know, like we're creating God's image. But what does that really mean that we've been created in God's image? There's a lot of dialogue about this amongst theologians. Turn on the Christian radio or the Christian TV. You're going to hear a lot of different viewpoints on what this means. I was actually up in Lopez Island this week with seven other senior pastors. We had this long discussion on this topic, and we all had various opinions. But I just want to go to the Bible and see what the Bible says. So all the way to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. This is God. He says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, would you say this with me? So God created mankind in his own image. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them both male and female. Now there's many dimensions to this amazing revelation, but the central part is this. We are persons as God is a person. We're made in his likeness, which means he's placed within us the equipment to relate to him one person to another. He's given us everything necessary to know him, to love him, obey him, enjoy him, fear him, talk to him, have fellowship with him. Now, God also created other things, right? He created the animals. And like human beings, they're also conscious living beings. You want to have your breath taken away? Just watch that Planet Earth series on Discovery Channel. That is incredible, amazing. It actually got me kind of depressed because most of the things on that uh, series I've never seen before in my life, meaning I have lived here and I've been to Canada once. So, <laughs> But see, with animals, because they are not made in God's image, they are not designed to fellowship with him like humans do. This is an important concept to grasp. You see, the fact that we are made in God's image, it separates us from all of God's creation. Only humans can relate to God at that level. Foursquare describes it this way, that only humans possess the three elements necessary for full personhood. So three elements. Maybe you've heard this before, but if you have or haven't, I just want to refresh our memories. Number one, we uh, have a mind. We have this capacity for rational thought. We have this capacity to retain knowledge. Now, if you've ever watched the news, you'll see that some people use their minds better than others, but we all got one, right? We all got a mind. And then we also all have a heart. We have a heart. Like God, we have affections. We have that capacity to feel and the capacity to love. <clears throat> so we have a mind, we have a heart, and we have a will. We make choices that are based on information, but we don't just make choices that are log the logical response to that information. Have you noticed that? So sometimes we make good choices, but other times we make bad choices, right? Have you noticed that? Sometimes we are obedient, but other times we are rebellious. Sometimes we are so selfless, but it seems like often we are selfish. That's because we have a will, a free will. We have an opportunity to make choices. So we have a mind, we have a heart, and we have a will, Creating God's image. And the fact that God has created us in his image, it also means that we are spiritual beings. This is incredible. God is spirit. That's what the Bible tells us. John chapter 4, verse 24. It says, God is spirit and his worshipers, would you say this with me? They must worship in spirit and in truth. So God is spirit. We are spirit. And because of that spiritual nature, we continue to exist even after our bodies die. 
Our existence is spiritually based, not physically based. This is one of the reasons why as a church, as a life-streaming church, we put such a priority on preaching the gospel because without Christ, some people will exist forever separated from God even after their bodies are dead and buried. Another thing to consider when you think about this idea of being created in God's image, it's this. And this should blow your minds a little bit this morning. It surely blows mine. It's that God so fashioned us that his only begotten son was able to become a man and remain one of us forever as a resurrected man. That blows my mind. That in our likeness, Jesus remains able to fully express the personality of God. As a human, Jesus is able to fully express the personality of God. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us the gospel displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, the Son, it tells us, is the image of the invisible God, this is amazing. This is amazing. God has created man in such a way that his son is able to fully express the personality of God as man forever. So don't overlook or take for granted this idea that you and I, all of us in this room, we are created in the image of God. There's something special and there's something unique about that reality. So hold on to that thought. Now I want to move on to the next question. So if we are created in the image of God, how has God's image been corrupted in humans? Because I don't know if you've noticed, it doesn't seem to be how it probably was supposed to be. We preached on this. We, we, we started off with the fall of man. What a great way to kick off a series, right? On the fall of man. That will bring the people in. <clears throat> you are a... Anyways, <laughs> fall of man. And what did I preach on? I preached on the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Remember that? We were hostile towards God. We became selfish. And all humans now, are, we are born severely damaged in our essential natures. We are alienated. We are hostile toward God. Whatever Adam and Eve had in that Garden of Eden, it's been lost. It's gone. You see it all around us. Do you see it all around you? I see it all around me. Whatever we had is gone. Whatever we had has been lost. Our conscious personalities have been separated from the direct influence of the Holy Spirit. And instead, we now are inclined to rebellion and preoccupation with self. According to R.A. Torrey, we're born with these following limitations. There's three of them. Number one, we are born with a mind that is blind to the truth of God. Paul tells us this. This is a great scripture. He says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. A natural man does not accept the things of of the Spirit of God. They are, in fact, foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So we're born with a mind that's far from God. Number two, a heart or affection that are set on things that displease God. I, we had a big argument about this, actually, uh, while, while we were gone this week. Some of us were saying that we were born good. Others of us were saying we were born sinners, and, and there was a big discussion about that. But I believe the Bible tells us our hearts, our affections are set on things that displease God. We are enemies of God. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, we love, this is so good, and it's for all of us outside of Christ. We love the things we ought to hate. What does it say? We hate the things we ought to love. It's the human condition, isn't it? Oh, a heart that's against God and a will set on pleasing self. Number three, a will set on pleasing self, not God. Again, this is what we are born with. You can see this, again, all around us. You can see this in yourself outside of Christ. This is, again, the Apostle Paul talking. He says in Romans 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. 
for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. So there you go. We're born with this will that is set on pleasing ourselves, not God. I would say this in regards to our will. I think this is important. Even the things that please us that are not necessarily evil in themselves, the fact that we disregard the will of God and seek our own will and our own self-fulfillment, that is the essence of sin. It's the idea that we serve ourselves, that we have become our own gods, right? My will be done instead of a passionate pursuit of the will of God being done in my life. So we're born with these limitations. There's been this corruption. I think corruption is the best way to describe it, a corruption of God's image in human beings. What we had in the garden, we no longer have. But then this this is how my mind kind of goes. I'm walking through this this week, and I'm like, so what? You know, what's the big deal? So I make a few mistakes, right? We all make a few mistakes. Nobody's perfect. You know, so my mind, my heart, my will is a little bit corrupt. Is that really a big deal? Well, that leads to my next question. Why must we be born again? Because, see, until the Holy Spirit miraculously transforms us in that corruption, we are hopelessly trapped in a vicious cycle that ultimately leads to death. Let me explain it this way. Our minds, our hearts, our wills, they're corrupted, and in that corruption, it leads us to sin against God. This sin brings with it condemnation and further separation from God. This further separation from him leads our minds, our hearts, and our wills to be even more corrupt, which leads to even more sin, which leads to further corruption and condemnation and separation. See, outside of Christ and the rebirth that comes by the Holy Spirit, we are in serious trouble. Do you see that? Like, not a little bit of trouble, but serious trouble. In our sin, in our rebellion, in our corruption, we are dead. Outside of receiving Christ's work, we are dead. We must be born again because we're spiritually dead. It's very important to understand. And sometimes I think Christian theologians and and, and just Christians that I hang out with try to make it like we're kind of like half dead, you know, like half, you know, we're almost, I don't get it, like we're just kind of good and then if we do this, then we're really good. I don't know what to say. Outside of Christ, you're dead. You're just dead. You can't like be a little dead. You're just dead. You're dead. You must be born again because you're dead. See, apart from the new birth, in our deadness, we are unable to obey God. We are, and we continue to fall into increasing bondage and increasing condemnation that ultimately leads to death. The Bible doesn't give us any indication of hope outside of Jesus Christ and outside of being born again. Several scriptures. I just picked three of them. Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Even you. <laughs> and even you. And even you. And even me, right? No one outside of Christ is righteous. That, that means all of us. That means you, the person sitting next to you, all of us. None of us are righteous. How do you get to be in a relationship with God? Only if you are righteous. Only if you're declared righteous. Because what? God is holy and he is righteous. The only way to be in communion with him is to be without sin and declared righteous. But this just told me that no one is righteous, not even one. We're in trouble. Here you go. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That didn't just say your neighbor or the person behind you or in front of you. It said all of you. That includes you. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. If you've fallen short, that means you cannot be in relationship with him because, again, he is righteous. You are not righteous. No one is righteous, and you cannot be in communion with God. You are dead. You're in trouble. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So we're in a world of hurt. Why do you need to be born again? Because you're dead. 
It just blows my mind that we can't come to a consensus on that as a Christian community. And out of God's love for us, we can accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. And we are made alive. We're born again. And it breaks through the vicious sin cycle that keeps us alienated and keeps us separated from God. And instead, we are brought back into a right and loving relationship with God again. Hallelujah. So I hope you can see that we all need to be born again. You know, we had it pretty good with God. Remember the Garden of Eden, pretty good. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're creating God's image, but then we rebel against God. God's image is corrupted by sin. Sin brings its guilt, condemnation, ultimately death. But if we put our faith and trust in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Bible promises we will be born again. There is some good news in the house this morning. So the last question is this, and again, I think this is where it gets really exciting and encouraging for me. It's the question of what occurs in the new birth? If it's not just some behavior modification system, what actually happens in this new birth? This will change how you live your life if you can truly understand this. The new birth, it's the immediate result when a person repents and accepts by faith the atonement of Jesus Christ. At that moment, you and I become positionally holy, declared righteous before God, no longer separated from the presence of God by the barrier of sin. We are no longer hostile toward God. In fact, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us, that we now have peace with God. When we repent of our sins and accept by faith the work of Jesus on the cross, instantly the Holy Spirit enters us and his indwelling presence provides us the resources and the care and the help needed to reverse the damage that has been done to the image of God. From that moment on, he is constantly present and available to help us. The new birth is more amazing, more powerful than we will ever be able to comprehend. Hallelujah. And this is what happens. And there's a lot that happens with the new birth, but I just picked three of them. Because it kind of fit well with the other things I've said, and I try to keep some order in my messages. So number one, here's what you get. A new mind. Do you see how I did that? I started with the mind and it being corrupted, now you get a new one. I am, wow, that's really good. So you get a new mind. Listen to this. God, he provides inspiration. He provides guidance. Pastor Adam talked about this last week, that God provides revelation. I loved when you said that last week because that is the truth of being a spirit-filled Christian is that God is continuing to reveal himself to us. We have a new mind. See, we used to rely on the corrupted reasonings of our natural mind. We all did that. That's what we had. That's what we relied on. But now at any time, as Christians, we can set our minds on the spirit. We can set our minds on the spirit. That's what Romans 8, 6 says. This is the apostle Paul talking again. He says, This is so good. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is what? It's life and peace. The flesh, it was death. But by the spirit, which is all of us in this room who are born again, that mind is life and peace. God lifts our thought processes to an entirely new level. God teaches and speaks and leads and comforts and inspires. We receive wisdom and knowledge far beyond our former capacities. Our old blindness is now replaced by an unfolding revelation. So we are given a new mind, a mind that the Bible tells us is constantly, continually, daily being renewed. We're also given a new heart. I know this was so important for my own life, to have a new heart. When we walk in the Spirit, our affections and our attitudes are miraculously replaced by God's affection and God's attitude. We have this unlimited source of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We find ourselves, this is an incredible thing that happens when we, when we receive the Lord. We find ourselves loving the things that please God 
and actually hating the things that we once loved. Anyone, did that happen to anybody else when you became a Christian? It's an amazing thing that happens. So we're given a new mind, a new heart, and a new will. A new will. Before receiving the atonement of Christ, our wills, they were not free to obey God. In fact, our wills were not even inclined to obey God. Powerful forces, much more powerful than we ever realized. Powerful forces were holding us captive. The power of sin, the bondage of sin, the power of the flesh. We are slaves to our flesh and in bondage from the influence of the devil. As descendants of Adam and Eve, we were all born into this world subject to these powerful forces. And we were, in one way or another, we were trapped by them in that downward spiral of rebellion against God. But in the new birth, the grip of these corrupting forces has been broken. Our wills have been set free. We are free at last to submit to God to worship God, to obey God. Although we still have the, capa- the capacity to choose right or to choose wrong, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit has put God's laws on our hearts and he writes them upon our minds. In fact, the inclination of a believer is so profoundly changed by the new birth that 1 John 3, 9 tells us this incredible thing. It tells us no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That means that even if we as believers sin in our new nature, we do not want to, and with God's resources available to us, we will stop as soon as we're able to. Isn't that beautiful? In your new nature, you do not want to sin. So even if you did sin, you're like, I know that's not of God, I know that's not who I am, and you turn the other way. Hallelujah. The Holy Spirit, he teaches us, he guides us, disciplines us, convicts us, he encourages us, he comforts us until not only do we obey God, like if it was just so that we'd obey God, like forced to obey God, that would be one thing. But not only do we obey him, we want to. There is a desire within us to obey God, to please God, to do what is right. It's beautiful. So if you're born again today, You have a new mind, new heart, new will. Yes, you're still tempted, just like everyone else on the face of the earth. Stop getting so down yourself because you're tempted. Everyone is tempted. Yes, your flesh is still hanging around and evil is still very present. But at the deepest levels of who you are, you are one who desires to please God. That's who you are. You're a new creation. You have been bought with a price. You're a holy one of God. You're redeemed. You're a saint, justified, righteous, forgiven, and free. And and I want us... What I want to do, I just want us to consider the implications of actually believing the truth of what I've just spoken and believing these truths in your life and living from a place of believing that these things are true. How would your life look differently if you honestly believed that you've been given that new mind, a new heart, and a new will? For many of you, embracing this belief, it would change the way that you think about yourself. It would change the way that you talk about yourself. Some of you, you're still in the habit of calling yourself a sinner. If you're a Christian, you were a sinner. But you are a sinner saved by grace. Don't overlook that. Don't rush by that. You are a sinner who has been saved by grace. Now you are an adopted child of God. See, you were justified. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Justified, as if you had never sinned. You were declared righteous before a holy God 
Did you know that God, when he sees you, he sees his son? He sees you righteous. He sees you holy and clean. You were a sinner, but now you're a saint. Yes, sometimes you still sin. Yes, sometimes you miss the mark. Yes, you fall short. I get it. But your sin, as a Christian, your sin does not define you. That is not who you are. You have been born again. For some of you, if you truly believe what I just presented, it would be a radical change in how you treat one another. It would. It would just be a radical change. You would be much quicker to love others, to, to forgive others. Now, if you're just your old self and your old nature, it would make sense for you to hold on to grudges or unforgiveness. I could see how you would withhold your love from another person. But that's not who you are. You're a Christian. You're a child of God. You're one that has been made in the image of God. And the Bible tells us that God is love. And therefore, if God is love, and if you are a son and daughter of God, that means you are a son or daughter of the God of love. You are defined by your Father's love. The Father's love flows in you, and the Father's love flows through you. And it flows freely and graciously to everyone around you. Because you are a Christian. You've been born again. And for others of you, if you truly believe that you were born again, it would radically change your decision-making process. Because once you realize and believe that you are an accepted, adopted child of God, a new creation who desires to please God from your very being, you begin to make decisions that bring life instead of those decisions that bring death. See, your new nature, this is an amazing thing about being a Christian, your new nature actually desires life. Now, I get it that there's a lot of things that are tempting you and things that are pressuring you and things that are trying to enslave you and bring bondage into your life. But who you are as a Christian in Christ, you want to do things and say things that bring life. Did you know that? At the innermost part of who you are as a believer, as a holy one of God, as a righteous one of God, the things you say and do are meant to bring life. But many of us, we don't understand this. We don't understand what happens at conversion. And so we continue to try to satisfy the old nature, right? We get a little selfish. We try to satisfy ourselves by choosing things that lead to death. But when you were saved, I just want to say it again, you were given a new nature with a new will, and your will as a follower of Jesus Christ, your will is to please God. And so today, I, I want to give us all this opportunity to become more aware. Just more aware. By the Holy Spirit's leading, by the Holy Spirit's prompting, become more aware of the spiritual reality of the new birth. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is this new birth? that has taken place in every one of us, whether we get it or not, it's taken place. If you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have been born again. But I want us to think about this. What does it mean to have a new mind? What does it mean to have a new heart and a new will? So I want to give us an opportunity this morning to approach God, not from that corrupt mind and corrupt heart and corrupt will. That's sometimes I feel like that's how we try to approach God is from a place of corruption. But instead, approach him from a place of sonship where he's Abba, Father. He's your daddy. And he's made you new. You're a new creation. So I'm gonna give us a minute. And in that minute, just open up your heart, open up your mind, open up your will to the Holy Spirit's voice. Speak to him at a level of freedom, not in chains, not in bondage, not in slavery, but in freedom.
My life verse is 1 Corinthians 13 and 11. When I was a child, I spoke, reasoned, and thought like a child. When I was older, I put away such childish things. Proverbs teaches me that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It begets the question, why should I fear the Lord? If there was a demonstrative title for my life, it would be the courage to remain compassionate. It's my desire to share with you life before answering that still small voice and life since. Before I begin, I would sincerely like to thank all of you just for being here and for allowing yourself to be open to relationship with Jesus Christ. Alcohol addiction. It's been nearly six years without my mistress, Miss Shmirinoff. Once enlightened by the Holy Spirit that I had the power to break off our relationship, freedom and rahema with Jesus Christ were just around the corner. I spent 20 years with her because I believed that she was a good listener. Amongst the obvious dysfunction was the fact that she was a spirit in the form of vodka and not a human being. Feelings of betrayal and abandonment were at the center of why I chose to coddle such an intimate relationship. But once I did, I lost everything, relationships, my freedom, and my reputation. Throughout it all, I was convinced that nobody understood our relationship and that it would simply just remain our secret. The problem is she told on me to everyone without me even knowing it. To add salt to the wound, I had called myself a born-again Christian since 2002. I could only ever know him in Logos, only in Word. I tried other programs and found that the particular model of addiction for me was shallow at best and entitled it on the opposite end. Ten years of working various programs and my craving never dissipated. I was commanded to take full responsibility for my own action of inviting alcohol into my body. For me, the notion of that my craving was a particular disease kept me from getting away from my mistress. In December of 2006, I met the love of my life, and we were married in March of 2008. Many of you know my lovely bride, Dion. I had been and was counting to be biblically I apologize. I had been and was continuing to be biblically unfaithful to her by carrying on this affair with Ms. Shmirnoff. My bride clearly stated that she would let me self-destruct, but that I'd have to do it by myself. She, in fact, did have biblical ground to stand on when it came to the issue of being unfaithful in our marriage. She had complete justification to hand me divorce papers. You, the listener, will be amused to learn that my wife is a prosecuting attorney and that I had to spend some time in the local Graybar Hotel because of earned DUIs. It was there that I heard the still small voice tell me that he was with me and that he would never leave or forsake me regardless of what my earthly reputation had become, and it was bad. That I had hit bottom... If I could only choose to put the shovel down, which was the vodka bottle. I was pretty sure that my new life and my new wife were all going down the tube and that she was going to file divorce. 
based not only on what her profession is, but also based on the fact that I had blown it as her new husband. Waiting patiently in the wings was a gorgeous partnership with the Holy Spirit that had blossomed into full-blown Rahima with a veil-torn joy over our lives. I was raised a priester, so my parents went to church at Christmas and Easter, and that, that was part of how I was raised. As a six-year-old boy singing in the choir in Eureka, California, at Trinity Christian Church, some of you know the song, they will know we are Christians by our love. I had heard the Holy Spirit whispering the meaning of those words specifically to me, and they resonated deeply, even as a six-year-old kid. In life, there are those moments that somehow seem to be outside of time, and this was one of those for me. It's my firm belief in hindsight how much erosion trust of, and the trust of God that both of my parents had in their heart, so that church was more of a club that had its perks. I recall a memory of a beautiful Bible being given to my mom that was never once opened during my formative years. Their yoke of allegiance was all mammon. It's what they learned, and it's what they knew. As such, there was no modeling of a spiritual walk, no logos, no logos and wouldn't even know what Rahema is. Their free will choices to believe in and embrace only what their human eyes could see has led me into deep prayer that the eyes of faith might be opened for my entire secular family. Neither one knew themselves how to be comfortable in their own skin. I preface that by saying I deeply love and respect both of my parents. My father's been gone for some time, but my mom is still alive, human, very worthy of forgiveness. An annual move afforded no chance at roots to deepen, either with neighbors or with the Lord. No reason for accountability when there is always the option of moving. Yet another move in another new neighborhood found us living next door to a family who was on fire for Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the Moore family. <sighs> Mr. Moore had earned a high f- seven-figure income in real estate, affording them the spoils of material things. One day, Mr. Moore apparently heard a word from the Lord directing him that the season to move his family away from the spoils of all material things was of the essence they moved from Los Angeles to a small town in Southern, California, uh, in Southern Oregon. They had boys the same ages as my brother and I, and we all became fast friends. But behind closed doors, my parents referred to them as the Holy Rollers next door. <laughs> they were consistent with ongoing dialogue about their weird sense of the world. And then my dad would go and borrow Mr. Moore's riding lawnmower. Three months after moving to the Moors in Phoenix, <clears throat> which is a small town in southern Oregon, my dad had his first heart attack at 37 years old, which resulted in a successful triple bypass surgery. Dan and Bonnie Moore modeled kindness and compassion for our family as my dad recovered over the next eight weeks, providing meals, cleaning, and running my brother and I around to different sports practices, keeping us busy all the while while saying, you can trust God. 
Nine weeks after my dad's surgery, he was back to work, and the Haugers were grateful to have our patriarch back. I was seemingly born with an affinity for animals, but dogs in particular. The Moors had a Doberman named Ruby and a Golden Retriever named Belle. Our backyards were connected to create a 10-acre plot with plenty of room for dogs to run. Truth be told, I enjoyed the dogs every much as bit as I did their kids. My love of their dogs wasn't lost on Mr. Moore, who hired me to feed water and exercise them while they were to go on a snow skiing vacation. Dan, Bonnie, and the boy my brother's age were all killed in a vehicle fire on the way home from that vacation. Danny Moore, the boy my age, their nine-year-old son, was the lone survivor, having now to live with his unsuccessful attempts at trying to pull his family from a flame-engulfed Jeep Wrangler. He had sustained third-degree burns over 90% of his body and was now back home. Danny had asked me to stay and hold his hand while he was having his bandages redressed for only the third time. And I found myself being so honored that he trusted me to say yes. The screams were agonizing, even with the copious amounts of pain medication on board, yet I found myself drawn towards Danny in the brevity of his deep loss. A brave little boy who had watched his entire family burn to ashes, and he wanted me to include, he wanted to include me in his healing. He spoke of God in ways that I just didn't understand. Danny would be the first. Danny's family, the Moors, would be the first out of over 15 young deaths that I personally would experience in my life, who were either best friends or family members. I have a half-sister, Kelly, that drank herself to death that I had pre previously made mention of. I learned that my dad had been previously married before meeting my mom, and this information was never shared with me. Secrets. Again, there's nothing but forgiveness from my heart for, towards my parents for never sharing this. A year prior to my sister passing away at 36 years old, my dad passed away from a heart attack number three. A year prior to that, my cousin Brett died of leukemia. He was 29. An hour before Brett died, his mom, my Aunt Denise, she took her own life from a pharmaceutical overdose. She was 46. Of course, I've lost grandparents and have attended many funerals and of friends and family that have lived full and rich lives into their 90s, but there's still something so raw about this biblical sting of death that can never be fully appreciated until it's actually experienced. After my cousin Brett passed away, I promptly picked up the phone and dialed my parents' number. I received an answer on the phone and that was calmly explained to me that life is for the living and that was the response that I had received. It wasn't compassion, and it didn't look like compassion. In fact, I was made to feel shame for caring. 
desperate enough for companionship and compassion, coupled with the disappointment of my fellow man, I chose to embrace my relationship with booze. My free will choices have literally killed dreams, stolen my freedom, and destroyed my reputation. His call. Armed with a bachelor's degree in political science and too much adrenaline, I have professionally served as an admissions advisor, a grant manager, a property improvement consultant, and the owner of a small business. While I accepted Jesus Christ in my Lord, as my Lord and Savior in June of 2002, it wasn't until three and a half years ago that I clearly heard his whisper commanding me to go serve in the midst of my pain. I didn't have work. He told me to go and serve those who have work. In the midst of my pain, he told me to go and serve those in deeper pain than I was. He has since sent me to over 25 different locations to serve his bride. That's you, by the way. If you will bear with the analogy, he sent me to wash the feet of his bride with my pressure washer. It's morphed into a literal foot washing ministry, the love of serving, and it's based on John 13. Beginning of my testimony, I asked the question, why should I fear the Lord? I fear the Lord because although I read he will never leave or forsake me, what I fear the most is my propensity to daily leave him. That is a chain I'm not willing to hold anymore. The narrow path is so hard to walk, but we have a real life enemy that pursues us every single day with those chains, wanting to keep us tethered to that wide path. Break those chains. Find your narrow path. Jesus loves you. Thank you.